It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 267, The Silent Years and Roman History. After the experience with Jesus at the age of 12 in the temple, we have no biblical reference until Jesus is 30 years old. This silence actually speaks a lot to our Christian walk. Yet at this time, there's a lot that's going on in Roman history um, and in the, this age in Israel. We covered before, in the year 6 AD, after Herod's death, uh, there's this old disorder on the Temple Mount. Um, Herod Archelaus, the principal heir of Herod the Great, if you want to call him that, um, he basically kills thousands. Um, even on the Temple Mount, um, he declared that they were, there was an insurrection. Maybe there even wasn't even an insurrection, as much as there was some revolting and others. Many were killed, Even I believe it was even Passover. He gets held accountable for this. And according to the documentation issued in the Senate in Rome, I quote, Herod of Palestine, who was indeed none other than Archelaus, was accused by his countrymen and was banished beyond the Alps, and his government was confiscated. Per Josephus, Augustus heard the accusation and the defense of Archelaus and banished him to Vienna and France. Then Augustus confiscated his country and treasure. Can anyone smell dirty money? Basically, with the craziness of Herod and the instability in the country caused by him and the ineptitude of his son, Augustus claimed the kingdom himself and his treasury personally. In fact, he sent his own agents later to confiscate Herod's treasures for himself. This was the way of Augustus. He did the same in Egypt, seizing its treasures not for the state, but for his himself. But then again, Augustus would later become the state. So basically, at the time of Jesus, some of Herod's descendants still ruled as client kings. But Judah in Jerusalem itself had no king. Their king was Caesar, or the Roman Empire. It was ruled by a Roman governor who allowed the people to rule themselves as long as he collected taxes and there was stability. In fact, the removal of a Herod gave more control to the priestly class which, in a way, ruled the day-to-day affairs of Jerusalem. I find it fascinating how the wickedness of Herod the Great followed his children until his kingdom was taken from them. More interesting is the fact that all the beautification of Jerusalem and the great decorations for the coming king, unbeknownst to Herod, was fulfilled by a man who is now dead and his son, his kingdom, stripped from him. A gilded city on a hill was prepped for its true king. And that was Herod's, like, real achievement in his life, was he he did this city beautification project for Jesus. Now about the Herods that did follow. Herod Antipas ruled parts of modern Jordan in the area west of the Sea of Galilee. So this part of Jordan was 
why he had jurisdiction over John the Baptist who was baptizing on the Jordan River. Herod Antipas only ruled part of his father's inheritance because his inheritance was split. And in the end, though, he would be the ruler over the area that gets the most attention as well of Jesus' ministry outside of Jerusalem, which was west of the Sea of Galilee. It is this Antipas we will see later in our story, in fact, all throughout our story. All right, let's talk about the Roman world. Many censuses were conducted. Most of the historical references reveal just under 5 million citizens in the Roman Empire. Later, Rome would, Rome itself would be reported to house 1 million people, the largest city in the world at the time. Augustus would claim he founded a city of clay. He left it marble. It's good marketing by the, uh, you know, the destroyer of the Republic. Lots of lessons to learn from Augustus. For the government of the United States is actually modeled on the Roman Republic. The Republic of Rome is no more. Its representatives are but pawns to the emperor now. So running with our parallel, despite the insane corruption, wickedness in the United States right now, there's a lot of fight in the American people. A cry that goes forth calling forth God for revival. There is a cry of God's people begging for revival. And a steadfast church that hasn't taken a knee. Much of it has, but there's a solid core that has not given a knee to the enemy. No, it's not our time. But the Rome in the time of Jesus, it is now officially transformed into an empire. At the heart of the Roman transformation is a corruption and decay, for its people have lost its freedom and rights, and the hundreds of thousands who rallied to fight Hannibal wouldn't even stand against him in its current state. This decay, this thread of evidence of the zeal leaving the Roman Empire is evident in a scene, my personal opinion, that there's so many different opinions out there, of something that happened in 9 AD. I believe there's a picture of something that goes on in the Roman Empire that, that shows how it slows its advance. It slows its, uh, um, you know, we're going to soon see Rome to stop that inevitable growth that it had. Uh, the scene is at a battle of the Teutonberg Forest. Augustus situates his dozen or more legions all through the empire to keep order and maintain his borders, expanding where possible. Before 9 AD, Augustus sent, sends legionaries into Germany to lead punitive raids and to secure the borders. The campaign was successful. Legionaries returned to their fortifications, namely the Rhine. They would expand... There was times you would see different maps where they would take over almost a third of Germany. Later on, it was like two-thirds of Germany. And you look at another map, and they're all the way back to the Rhine. It's this strange aspect of uh, they never fully take Germany, and it's a it's a conquering and a withdrawing, and we'll, we'll see why. The campaign was successful in 9 AD, and the legionaries were returning to their fortifications, namely the Rhine, which was pretty much just a simple border. There's an enormous river. Then a revolt broke out in Illyria, and all but three of the legions were recalled to Illyria. Publicus Verus was given control of three legions on the Rhine, and when word came of a rebellion breaking out amongst the Germans, 
Varus, who is known for his brutality and crucifixion of his victims, marched his entire army into Germania. One of his trusted advisors, whose name was Arminus, a German auxiliary captain, led Varus to the exact location where he would actually betray him. As they entered the forest northwest of Osnabrück, they found the track narrow and muddy. Then a confederation of German states which had come together secretly, they emerged from the wood and they attacked Varus. The Romans were unable to organize and they were massacred. Roman casualties were nearly complete with losses of up to 20,000 legionaries. The result of this battle was that Romans were thrown over back to the Rhine again, which would be the border for many years. The complete loss of the legions caused the legionary numbers of 17, 18, and 19 to never be used again. This complete loss of those legions was a shock to the Roman world. This defeat stalled the Roman advance into Germany, and further punitive raids would occur until the Germans recovered at least two of the standards that were lost. In campaign after campaign, the Romans would defeat the Germans, but they would eventually withdraw back over the Rhine again because it was this natural border, and it appears they didn't want to invest in taking all of Germany. Generally, historians debate the reasons of this withdrawal or lack of expansion. Some say it was practical, but I, I lean toward the comparing the aggressiveness and resilience of the Roman Republic compared to the Roman Empire. I know Julius Caesar would have done it. Germanicus would take a large portion of Germany later, pushing back Arminus and the German confederations, but he would be recalled back to Rome, partly out of jealousies um, of the emperor at the time. In the end, the Romans would leave Germany and never fully take it, mostly allowing the large rivers to be the natural borders. It's a bit dramatized, but imagine the shock of the loss of the three legions to Augustus Caesar. Writer Robert Graves portrayed the shock of the emperor screaming, Varus, give me back my legions. Other accounts have the emperor and emperor mad, terrorized at night, screaming for his legions. But I think this speaks to that difference between the old republic, which would lose 100,000 legionaries and raise another army. 100,000 lost to the Carthaginians in a storm, 100,000 lost at Cannae, Compare that to the loss of 20,000 soldiers. The emperor's horrified. The people are shocked. Yes, they raise another army. They get revenge, but it's not the same. Instead, the history books make excuses for the Romans. They say things like, it's too expensive to field an army. Tell that to Julius Caesar. Romans didn't even speak like this before. Before is about survival and honor or death. Now, fielding an army is too expensive. Rome is already showing its softness. Rome will still have and, and see much glory, but soon we'll start seeing decay and more decay. Per William Durant, a great civilization is not conquered from without until it's been destroyed from within. Its moral courage would only be in decline at this stage, and its end was inevitable, but surprisingly slow. Rome will last another 400 years, suffering a very, very slow death. Almost as if the empire, surprisingly enough, would be sustained by the future saints and their prayers. Augustus would remain emperor until his death in 14 AD, 
where his aloof and awkward stepson, Tiberius, cool name, Caesar Augustus, became the great the next emperor. Augustus understood the awkwardness of his stepson and the ineptitude of some of his family, so he did something brilliant. He installed an administrative class whose rule was similar to city managers of today. Regardless of city, you know, a political affiliation, their role was to fulfill the day-to-day administration of the empire to prevent disruption due to mismanagement by future emperors and to prevent corruption as well. Tiberius would rule Rome, and it just seemed like controversy after controversy. In fact, reading about him is quite boring, actually. And whether he was jealous with Germanicus or he was evading plots on his own life, he just seemed strange and kind of uninteresting to read about. It's kind of a, kind of a, kind of a dud, really, uh, to have as your emperor at the time of Jesus. Disinterested, you know, is probably a good way to put it. If he heard about Jesus, he probably would have been like, okay, you know, and where's my next meal? You know, he just he was a, an odd guy, an odd pick um, that you would have at the time of Jesus. Um, obviously, we're, we're in a, got some crazy emperors coming with Caligula and Nero. Um, and then we have other hardliners like uh, Hadrian, you know, and some of these guys. It's going to be interesting. And then, of course, we have Titus. So um, many emperors and Roman history will now be filled with the study of emperors, not famous men or orators or Republicans or you know, people debating and writing fantastic stories and and histories. It's more about the emperors themselves. Often, Tiberius, he just seems to be hiding or in a palace like he has mental problems and or he's aloof and indifferent to the empire. He would rule until 37 AD and be succeeded by none other than Caligula himself. So that's the overall picture of what's going on in the Roman world. In the next episode, we'll return to the Promised Land, and we'll enter the ministry of Jesus. It's going to be fun. It really is. It's a powerful time coming. John the Baptist, the temptation, the start of Jesus' ministry, the pivotal point in all world history, the fulcrum of time itself. And as we start the next episode, we'll we'll break forth into Jesus' true ministry. And we mentioned this before, that we only actually have 25. This was a um, kind of a study or account by Rick Renner, which is pretty awesome. Uh, and he said there's about 25 days of Jesus' ministry over a three-year period recorded in the Bible. Now, there's about 35 days, but you remove the duplicates, you merge them together, you have close to 25. There's multiple ways to count it, but um, the other days, well, I guess you have to use your imagination. John 21:25. There are many more things that Jesus did. If all of them were recorded, I suppose even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Let's conclude this episode of Message to Kings with a few startling things that happened to Jesus. Something I fight hard to explain. Something happens to Jesus' family between the age of 12 and 30. His father, who was present at the temple scene when he was 12, doesn't appear again in the biblical account. Joseph disappears from our story. There's a lot of things that could have happened. 
but we must assume he died, which is just crazy. Jesus' father died early. It's a sad thing to consider. So what does this say, and what does it tell us? It's complicated, but we don't see Jesus running around with father wounds, and he doesn't have a daddy complex. No, I, I think it shows that these scriptures, that the loss of his father only led him to further understand his heavenly father. Check out these verses. John six thirty eight. For I come down from heaven not to my own, but the will of him who sent me. John one thirty. I and the Father are one. John 5.19 I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. There's another verse that says, he, he, only, he only did what he saw and heard his Father do. Jesus, though without an earthly father, intimately knew his heavenly father. Technically, he was one with him, so I, I you know, I want to be careful with that. Um, you know, perfect theology absolutely says he was a hundred percent man and he was a hundred percent God. But there are some weird verses that are hard to understand. Um, if you think about it. You know, when Jesus was born, he still had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to eat because he was still man. He was still an infant growing up. He had to learn how to, you know, you know, it's strange to say he had to learn manners, you know. Well, I assume he would already know manners, you know, or how to speak politely to people or have kindness. Um, all those things are kind of a mystery, you know, like, why would he really have to learn anything? Because he's 100% God, right? <laughs> it's complicated. And there's some verses that make it even even more interesting. And you just kind of stare at those and say, what does that mean? Here's one. Hebrews 5, 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. What's not disturbing as much as, how does, how does that work, right, when you're fully God and, and fully man? How, how, does he, how could you even learn since you already know, right? Um, in this verse, it says, The son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Um, I don't know exactly what that means. And, and that's, the, that's the mystery that I actually want to get to and kind of end this episode with. Um, it's Jesus and the contradiction. I can't explain why the Son of Man who raised people from the dead, didn't raise his earthly father from the dead. But what I can say is that he came out of it with a powerful relationship with his heavenly father. And what a lesson for those who suffered tragedy in their lives. Another aspect is those, of those quiet years. Here in Jesus growing up, the son of God, nothing written about him between the age of 12 and 30. Nothing. We got nothing. But then again, what do we have from those quiet years of those in the Bible? Joseph was in prison. We don't have much except the favor that was on him, maybe a dream or two interpreted. 
David was on the run, waiting for his promise, his life threatened. But what did they learn? Ha! Joseph and David learned character, humility, meekness, the power of waiting. The most fertile place on earth is the valley, not the mountaintop. It's normal to be a nobody in the kingdom. It's normal to live in the contradiction. I picture Jesus going on walks with his father in the village of Nazareth. Amazing experiences, encounters, a building up of strength, spiritual strength. Time is in God's hands. The age of 30 was the age of when a Jewish man would be a teacher, a rabbi. Jesus was in the waiting. And I picture Jesus walking with his father around Nazareth. There was a walk, it wasn't far from a cliff, which overlooked the Jezreel Valley. A valley designated for the end times battle. I picture Jesus having a prophetic moment, seeing the end of the age battle, which would be dramatic indeed. He would encounter his father, and he would have some outrageous spiritual experience, and then the contradiction hits him. He returns home to work on house repairs, help his brother with chores around the house, maybe help his mom with dinner, or do the equivalent of ancient dishes or sweeping the floor. Amazing words and experiences of destiny balanced with the day-to-day operations of a family and or a family business. It's the power and contradiction of the kingdom of heaven on earth. This could be a picture of Jesus' life in Nazareth. I, you, everyone's experienced the contradiction. I've gone to a conference and or had a worship experience where I felt like my life was changed forever. You ever see words of promise that point to a future that's overwhelming and awesome? But then you're reminded of today, the bills to pay, the boring job you have. I have. That's a contradiction. The valley, it's the character building time. It's a time of waiting and spiritual training. Jesus is there right now. Not that he needed it. Not that it was actually required for him. But he was, because he was fully God and fully man. But he did this almost as a model for us to understand. So don't undervalue yourself and your potential. Even the Son of Man didn't dishes, the ancient equivalent. He swept floors, helped others with their schooling. He recited scriptures to his rabbi, though he was the word of God himself. Isn't that crazy? The contradiction of contradictions. We will see he's coming in spiritual strength with manifest itself in humility and meekness. This is our Jesus, and he's about to rock the world with his message. So when the time comes for him to be baptized, he's been preparing since the foundation of the earth, and his connection to his Father is perfect, and his ministry is pure, and his power profound.
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. If you haven't yet, please make sure to rate your podcast or share your podcast on your listening platform, whether it's Amazon, Spotify, iTunes, or Google Play. Also, check out the latest messagetokings.com website or email us with any feedback at messagetokings at gmail.com. Or you can support the program with donations on the website or from purchases from Steadfast Gifts, our Etsy-affiliated store, or through purchases of Resilience Awakening on Amazon. Just know every purchase goes towards supporting the program and future creative works for the kingdom. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you soon.